0: If I sit
1: down Everything you pray for Everything you play for me. Welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore and tonight I'm interviewing New Orleans filmmaker Tom Roche who's currently working on a documentary about pianist Professor Longhair. Our upcoming conversation will offer some insights into the life and motivations of Tom's filmmaking passions, including a look at Professor Longhair and why the wildly creative contributions of this NOLA treasure have had such a lasting impact on the way New Orleans music has developed today. But first, to get us in the mood, I'm going to play an obscure Professor Longhair cut picked out by Tom called Walk Your Blues Away. Yes, indeed, the mighty Professor Longhair. So, I'm going to bring Tom Roche on, but before I do, I want to give you a little bit of background about him. Tom is an accomplished film and video editor, documentary director and producer, and published author and photographer. He began his career in 1980 while a student at Florida State University and eventually dropped out to direct TV newscasts full-time and later got into his own creative pursuits. Some of his most notable projects in those early days include the earliest REM videos, festival-selected documentaries, ad agency work, and broadcast cable clients such as CNN, ABC, CBS, Al Jazeera, NFL, and the NBC Olympics. In the late 1990s, he was co-editor on 66 episodes of the pioneering Cartoon Network series, Space Ghost Coast to Coast, the boundary-breaking program which led to the creation of Adult Swim. Another specialty, multi-camera concert editing with videos for musicians as diverse as Kirk Franklin, Nora Jones, Melt Banana, and even Spinal Tap Unplugged. His self-produced documentary about R&B radio in the 1960s, *Ali, Pat, The Music is Recorded, landed first place in the 2010 Atlanta Film Festival. He was associate producer on a trio of civil rights documentaries, including Dare Not Walk Alone, Sacco and Vanzetti, and Spielman, College Foot Soldiers. In 2011, he edited the landmark Katrina documentary for Harry Shearer, The Big Uneasy. He was a member of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences Board of Governors from 2005 to 2009, and has chaired various Grammy panels over the last 25 years. He is presently a blues-jazz world host on WWOZ-FM New Orleans, and he is just completing the editing of a comprehensive documentary on local New Orleans legend, Professor Longhair. I hope you enjoy this conversation that took place earlier this week.
2: I've got Tom Roche here with me on the phone, and it's really a pleasure to have you with me on Be More Now. Thank you for being here.
3: Thank you, Blake, and it's great to um, modulate the airways of (laughs) KZYX.
2: Excellent. you want to start by sharing a bit of your background so the audience knows who you are and how you got interested in the work that you do?
3: Well, uh, my current title is uh, professional filmmaker, uh, editor, director, producer. Before I moved from Atlanta to New Orleans six, seven years ago, I did 25 years editing um, corporate junk, Coca-Cola and Home Depot and stuff, but also some creative things in the Atlanta scenes and worked for Cartoon Network. I worked on Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which was a, a bizarre and pioneering and beloved show and is covered many a bar tab in New Orleans when the hipster bartender finds out I worked on Space Ghost Coast to Coast. <laughs> and, and all along, I was a big fan of radio, even uh, in my childhood, uh, bicycling up to radio stations and knocking on the door and say, can I see what you're doing? And hanging out in top 40 stations. And then all through my life, I've knocked on the door of radio stations. I've knocked on the door of BBC, of Voice of America, of Radio France, uh, I just say, can I come in and see what you're doing? And when I moved to New Orleans, I knocked on the door of WWOZ in the French Quarter, which is really one of the great stations of the world, and uh, got a gig there, a volunteer gig. So it's a combination of film and video editing. And you know, I, I watched producers behind me calling all the shots, and I thought, well, I can do that. And one day you print a business card that says you're a director, and just like that you're a director it's not that hard
2: <laughs> <laughs> so when you think about professor longhair you're working on a documentary about him right now first tell me about that documentary and i know we have a clip that we're going to play so the audience gets to hear a little piece of what it is you're doing right well
3: um professor longhair is the type of uh idiosyncratic new orleans music musician that everyone in town knows and few people outside of new orleans knows he's really sort of on the same timeline as fat's domino but he had nowhere near the success and he struggled uh to to find success and find money even though he was absolutely brilliant and fused a number of genres all at once and arrived in 1949 50 51 with this fully formed new sound and it's um, it's a crime that he's not better known and we wanted to do a documentary that takes a deep dive and it features so many uh, New Orleans legends uh, who are household names, Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, Henry Butler, John Cleary, Grammy-winning, recently Grammy-winning New Orleans artist, and then just the people who know and love him. And I can guarantee you that even if you don't know Professor Longhair and you came to New Orleans, two hours would not pass before you heard either a marching ba- a street band playing on the corner or a second line playing him or WWOZ playing him. He really was that influential, and he's been gone since 1980, and it's as if he's never left. He's omnipresent in the city. It's sort of like going to the Caribbean and hearing um, the mighty sparrow, you know, an, an omnipresent legend in that area that people outside of that area, you know, need to get educated about. The film is expected in 2022, and we're working on a trailer right now. And so, this is uh, 90 seconds of just some short sound bites that feature Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, George Porter of the Meters, Irma Thomas, and just gives you a taste of the fun and exuberance of his music and the reverence that New Orleanians hold for Professor Longhair.
4: It's the rhythm of this city, I mean he really kind of nailed it.
0: Wow, where is he coming from? Because wherever it was, I wanted to go there. We have the man here that really originated funk and rock and roll. Well, Fess was larger than life. Speed. And at the same time, he was the guy next door. He was here when it
4: all started. He's the least famous member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
2: Overshadowed by Fess Domino, none of his records really made it to the charts.
0: Cause back in those days, you wore long hair. You just liable to wind up in jail anytime. And when I started playing music, well, people that didn't know me by my name, see, they used to call me Little Loving Henry. And then they started calling me Loving Doctor Professor Long Hair when I started playing music.
4: Professor Long Hair, rugged and funky. The new documentary, coming soon.
2: That is incredible. I, I feel like I just went to New Orleans listening to that. I mean, that, uh-huh. I can't wait to see this documentary. As a Professor Longhair fan for a long right. time, and I had the pleasure of spending a, a, a number of years and have a very good friend who's a New Orleans-style boogie-woogie pianist, who played with Walter Wolfman in Washington for a long time and now lives out of the country and continues that professor along her tradition. And so why do you think that he has influenced so many musicians and what made him so exceptional?
3: Well, he, like I say, there's no genre police in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, there's no one saying, oh, that's not jazz, you know, or I don't like that, or that bounce influence shouldn't get in the way of, of reggae or whatever it is. Um, There's, there's purest, yes, purest of of the New Orleans culture, but we're very open to mixing up the genres because we are the northern, we are the northernmost Caribbean city, and Professor Longhair started his life in Bogalusa, which was a hotbed of Ku Klux Klan activity, and his mother wisely uh, got him out of town and moved 60 miles to the south in New Orleans. And as a teenager, he worked as a stevedore along the river, along the, you know, the mighty, poor, the mighty Mississippi. And he encountered a lot of uh, Caribbean and South, South American influence. And of course, uh, New Orleans still is, you know, was so tied to uh, slaves given the freedom to play their percussion. And of course, there's a whole side story about jazz being born in New Orleans. And so Professor Longhair, whose real name is Roy Bird, came up just through the barrelhouse piano, rough and tumble New Orleans scene of the 30s and the 40s, but started to absorb Caribbean styles and Cuban styles and just arrived fully formed with this unique sound that's that's hard to describe beyond saying it's Professor Longhair. There's certain hallmarks of his style. These triplets of this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da type of thing and the the hallmark of having to play unamplified in barrelhouse house piano joints, which meant he had a left arm driving those bass notes louder than almost any piano player had been known to do at the time. He also kept a rhythm going by kicking the piano, kicking it Good good, and hard so that the, the room would get, get some percussion going. And then over on his right hand, just doing brilliant solos at the same time a brilliant melody is playing. So that's the best I can describe him without um, maybe just listening to another cut without talking on top of it. Maybe it might be time to listen to some of his 1959 song, Cutting Out, to give your audience okay, a taste of where okay, he's really at. That. We're fading out, kind of, kind of halfway through that. But um, that's that's a record that came out on a Atlantic compilation around 1970 that gave him a new surge in popularity and interest because there were a handful of 78s recorded by Atlantic. Ahmet Erkan and those cats came to New Orleans, and um, all of a sudden. Professor Wanga, who had dropped out of the music business by then, he was, you know, pushing a broom at a record store, and he was sort of uh, rediscovered, although he still played piano now and then. um, His best days were uh, remembered only by the locals, and it was really sad, but it was the time when, if you're playing for tips, and you're playing for tips in an impoverished community, then you might not bring home but a couple bucks, and you've got a wife, and you've got children that they got to eat, and so he actually had a side hustle as a as a card dealer, and uh, you know uh, being in charge of uh, gambling tables, uh, unofficial backroom gambling tables, and he was an outstanding card shark. He didn't cheat, but he always won. So go figure that out, and maybe the mathematical genius it takes to be A card wizard and make a living off that ties into the mathematical genius that's possibly needed to run both hands playing double medleys and and solos and singing on top of that. That takes some serious brain power.
2: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, you can you can hold a whole room and count every card and yeah, yeah, I I get you. That's right. So
3: so there's all kinds of stories. You know, now speaking as a as a documentary editor, um, you know you're given I'm given 30 hours of footage, and you need to make a 90 minute movie, and so a lot has to throw away, and there's a lot of wonderful stories that end up on the cutting room floor, and there could almost be like you know a a five episode Netflix style story. His his uh, his his story is so interesting and so much fun and so life-affirming uh, in his music gets to a point where you cut the documentary one way, and then it's a whole lot of work to do that, and then you cut it another way. And what if we tell the story this way, and then mm-hmm. this person doesn't want to be in the film, or this song is a astonishing B-side, but we can't clear the rights to it. So many of his songs were on one-off labels that, you know, have been have changed hands 10 times, and that's, Part of the reason the film is 99 percent done and still not released is because it's such a music rights are such a tangle with an artist where there's only a you know 10 or 10 or 15 classic recordings but they're scattered across many labels so that's the that's the annoying legalese side of it and then there's the other we, challenge of it he's like let me just say he's like a Robert Johnson figure okay. in that in his heyday there's only two or three photographs of him. Now, once he gets discovered, there's four, five, six, seven albums and all these films and all this and that, but to, so the the challenge in the documentary world is how do you visually keep the screen going while these great records play, are playing while you don't have any pictures of him? That's a challenge.
2: Right, so that's a, a question I have about his past. He He stopped playing music in, what year did he stop playing music?
3: Well, his real, his true New Orleans anthems are Go to the Mardi Gras and Big Chief, Part Two, and those came Uh out 58, 59, 60, and then he laid low from maybe 62 to 69, and around 69, uh, the the first stirrings of what would be the uh, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival started happening, and he was... He was we hate to use the word rediscovered because he was there all along and just you know rediscovered sometimes unfortunately just means white people got hip you know where he was he was there all along in, in plain sight but it was uh quint davis and allison minor who were getting the film festival together and quint tells this great story about the, the late great George Wine or George of uh, the Newport Jazz Festival founder, and he uh, came to town and Quint said, "Let's see what can I show a new visitor to New Orleans." And he took him this to a uh, Mardi Gras Indian rehearsal, and on the jukebox was Professor Longhair's "Go to the Mardi Gras" on this tiny local regional non-national label. And this was a song that they got out every Mardi Gras, like it was a Christmas record. It was like Bing Crosby's White Christmas, just like you didn't question, how's that melody go? It's just, that's our Christmas song. And so George Wien heard this song on the jukebox with this amazing vocal and these complex horns. And he said, who is that? And Quint, to his embarrassment, says it doesn't matter who that is, that's our Mardi Gras song. That's our Christmas record here. We play it all the time. And George Wien said, Well, you need to find out who that is, and you need to find out if he's around, and you need to book him into your jazz festival or your jazz and heritage festival ASAP. And that's how Bess got reconnected, and he played every jazz festival from the very first one up until uh, he died 10 years later.
2: I did not know that story. So he did manage to get some success for his music during his lifetime.
3: Yes. Yes. But the tragedy is he finally got a proper record deal. Remember, everything he recorded was someone else telling him what to do. And, or maybe, you know, like, like the embarrassment of Bo Diddley having to do a twist record, you know, this sort of thing. Right, um, right, But he finally was signed to Alligator Records, and he was given proper studio time. They brought in an out-of-town producer. Uh, Dr. John was there playing playing guitar since you know Fest does does just fine on the piano. <laughs> and other <laughs> local local musicians who are you know a, a New Orleans local musician, that's a pretty high bar right there. So anyway, the, the creme de la creme of New Orleans musicians backing up fest, fest doing his arrangements, covering some of his old classics, refreshing them, and then some new new uh, versions. And Fest died in his sleep the day the record came out. So he saw the adoration at the live shows at Jazz and Heritage Festival. He toured Europe. He played Tipitinas. They they founded a club for him. They, he was so beloved that they took up uh, like a large deli and turned it into a club and called it Tipitinas. The, he played New York City. He got reviewed in The Village Voice. But the the road took a toll on him. And being a, a poor black man in New Orleans, he had no regular health care and he died in his sleep and he was only in his early sixties. And it's, it's really sad. And, you know, now in New Orleans we have a New Orleans musicians clinic and you've got these older cats that are going way out into their sixties and seventies and eighties because they can now get care. And, and this was not afforded fest. And this is covered in the documentary. Irma Thomas speaks very strongly about what a tragedy it is that, that he didn't have the money to even get a regular checkup. So he just died in his sleep of natural causes just as the record broke loose and, and the
2: city was heartbroken. Ah, another story I do not know. So why are so many New Orleans musicians devotees of Professor Longhair? You know, you've mentioned Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, George Porter, who's the meters. Why is Professor Longhair so important to, to them?
3: Well, um, again, it's the, it's the combination of styles. It's almost this ephemeral thing that's, that's hard to put into words. I think we have a, uh, an actual excerpt from the film that we could listen to where Dr. John and Alan Sassant speak kind of generally about how beloved Fess is, and then George Porter, the legendary bass player of the Meters who drove, you know, Sissy Strutt back in the late 60s to be a, the massive hit just driven by a bass line, We could listen to George Porter talk about what Fess did with his left hand, how the bass on that piano was so strong. How do you be a bass player in a band when Fess is already in charge of that? So why don't you play that excerpt with uh, Dr. John and Alan Toussaint and we can hear just a little of those cats talking.
0: Okay. I just thought it was amazing that he had made up something completely different from his regulation maneuvers. So those worlds came together and lived in Professor Longhair, and what a wonderful uh, new world that came to be. Bess was a real originator. He wasn't no duplicator. He just had his own little kind of thing. I accomplished a lot of growth, and within my whole little industry, that, you know, where I consider where I'm, who I am today is because I paid attention when I had the opportunity to play with those gentlemen, you know? Fest, like I said, it was, you learn space with Fest because he had a left hand that would knock a bass player to death, you know? And then most of the times that I, see, I seen other bass players that played with him struggled, you know, c- you know trying to keep up just because, you know, they, they wanted to play his left hand you know, and, you know, it's like, you leave that left hand alone, man. That left hand is already got, it's is spoken for, you know. Leave that left hand alone and play something else, you know.
3: That left hand is spoken for.
0: <laughs> That's what <laughs>
1: George
3: Porter says, a, a lot of times a, a pianist is defined by uh, the solos and, you know, what he's doing with that right hand. And it's, rare, not rare, but some pianists are not defined by the notes as much as they are defined by the chords. And it was the chords that Professor Longhair was playing. And somehow, again, it's as if he had four hands because he could drive a melody and solo on top of it. And that's that gets into classic barrel house. But again, he takes the barrel house and infuses it with jazz, infuses it with R&B, and adds in Cuban, adds in Caribbean and um it's this one, it's this one of a kind style and New Orleans is just a melting pot and that that that, that damn word gumbo is so overused but it uh-huh. it works in this in this regard where at the end of the day you can't point to a genre that he lands in the genre is Professor Longhair
1: I want to stop for a moment and let you know that you're listening to Be More Now. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and the voice you hear is the voice of Tom Roche, who's a New Orleans documentary filmmaker, amongst other things. And we're talking about his upcoming documentary about Professor Longhair, the legendary New Orleans pianist, Professor Longhair.
3: He knows what his little audience at the bar in New Orleans likes, and he starts to realize that this has this has wider appeal, but again, it's 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 a, a tragic tale often told in New Orleans that the you know to make the make real money you've got to you've got to leave New Orleans you've got to really go out on tour because New Orleanians are gosh I, I don't want we're not greedy but we're just used to having so much of our inner spoiled so much of our entertainment is provided for free. You know, when you come to New Orleans, and I, I wish people would come to New Orleans right now because the city is is struggling. We have this the the whole city to ourselves right now. The tourists are gone, the cruise ships are gone. Everyone thinks Hurricane Ida destroyed the city, and it didn't. It destroyed around the city. So you can fly here cheaply. Um, once you get here, everything's expensive. Hotels expensive. Uh, foods, the astonishing restaurants cost a little money, but a lot of your music is free. A lot of the music, yeah. a lot of the great culture parades right down the street in front of you. A lot of the bars are just for tips, and that's a godsend if you're a music fan. But it's rough if you're a musician, and so right. people like Bone bon Shorty they go out on on mega tours around the world. You know, Fats Domino would go mega tours around the world. Rebirth, Brass Band, you know, Galactic
2: to Town is going to be here in the end of October, and they're also playing something also at the Fillmore. So yeah, a lot of New Orleans music comes to California. We're definitely right. on the on the rotation. Uh-huh. And those
3: and those tickets are probably forty, fifty, sixty dollars. And those and there's nine, ten people in those bands. And so even right. at that price. It's still pretty thin, but that same band is going to play New Orleans for $10, 15 if not in the second line parade at a social aid and pleasure club for free. I mean, okay. they'll get paid by the social aid and pleasure club. But it's a, it's a struggle to, fair, to pay New Orleans musicians a fair wage when it's expected that the music will be free or next to free. And this, if the bar charges a cover, you know the old dilemma. If the bar charges a cover, people walk on.
2: But that's the part, too, with tourism, because a lot of times, even mm-hmm. if the band, if your your band won't play for free, there's a band who wants to play for free because they're hoping to get discovered. So it's that same sort of thing, even if it's, it makes it difficult because there's always someone waiting right behind you in line that's willing. And then there's tourists who don't really know the music they're looking for a party it, especially back in the you know back in the old days where it was just a city that never slept and you know, i was there during um, when the during the curfews i've been there you know over the last couple of years my mother lives in in slidell so i spent time there on a you know in the past a fairly regular basis and so it's been um it was really interesting to see that post pandemic the new orleans music scene has really suffered I could only imagine that, you know, for people who love music, who love New Orleans, who love the players, who recognize what's happening, you know, I think a lot of people don't really know what to do. I did a couple of, I, I participated in some of the online music streams and, and donated money, and there was different funds, but it's it's really hard, time, exceptionally hard on the musicians.
3: Well, the, the musicians tried the, the Zoom calls, uh you know asking for tips in that and it sort of mirrored the, the struggle of uh, uh the collapse of uh, the newspaper advertising section 20 years ago when mm-hmm. the newspapers would complain that the analog dollars were replaced by digital dimes and right. the musicians couldn't really make it with the streaming shows and um remember the pre-pandemic New Orleans was a city of about 390,000 people with 11 million tourists. And so the bands had a full house almost every night. And with these cruise ships coming in, you know, nine to five only, the cruise ships don't stay into the night. The bands could be playing all afternoon, too, and making some nice money. And all of that is gone. And as an example, uh, a beloved pianist here, Tom McDermott, Highly recommend it. people look up Tom McDermott. He plays a regular gig at Bufa's, which is a, a, a tavern, a 1930s tavern on uh, Esplanade. And that is a gig that is usually a line around the, you know, not a line around block, but it's filled up and a little bit of a line to get in uh, without fail. And it's, you know, it's it's astonishing New Orleans piano music. He usually has a Rora Nealon, a clarinetist, or a trumpeter playing. And it's heavenly. It's just heavenly. You've got red beans and rice and redfish on the menu, and it's in this great old hang. It's fabulous. And my wife and I, Cheryl and I, went there two weeks ago, and we were the only two people there uh, on what should have been a packed house. So that's how empty the city is right now. In in time, the crowd grew from 2 to 7. But it's very sad. It's very unfortunate that the culture is still there, the architecture is still there. But, you know, COVID is, a, is still a dangerous thing. Remember, we, New Orleans got the COVID whammy right after the very first wave, right after New York City had that first wave. We had the second wave. So we went through the worst of it quick. And we have uh, a, a governor who's not insane, uh, who has kept, kept the science in the forefront, and we're battling it. So I think New Orleans right now is a safe place to see. And I just urge people to come down. Just hop a plane. My advice is always um, uh, fly in on Sunday and leave on Wednesday. So you're avoiding the crowds. Because it's a right. destination, a driving destination for the whole region. People from Texas and Arkansas come in for the weekend. so that's, But really, and it's, come in any time now because it's, it's, it's still lovely. And the musicians really need our support. And I was also going to mention, you know, we were talking about uh, brass bands pre-pandemic. I studied this carefully, and as a WWOZ host, I have to be up to speed on this. But there was something in the neighborhood of 40 individual New Orleans brass band aggregations going before COVID. Around 2019, I counted 40 different brass bands. And they all have their different sound. They're all... You know, there's, some are jazzy, some are bounce, some are hip-hop, some are pure, some are uh, the brass bands are experimenting with mixes where the brass gets buried and flanges around. And, I mean, it's, it's not standing still. But, you know, music and jazz in New Orleans is not ossified. It, it keeps changing and evolving, even though the conventional wisdom is that it's uh, possibly tepid or stuck in its ways. And I wanted to mention, just out of my love of radio, I partnered with the Voice of America Africa Service in Washington, DC two years ago to do an overview of the New Orleans brass band scene. And maybe this would be a a time to hear a little bit of uh, New Orleans brass band music by uh, dropping in and hearing just two minutes of this feature I made uh, paid for by your tax dollars, by the way, for the Voice of America <laughs> in America Washington D.C. And, and this aired on um, about 50 or 60 FM stations and shortwave radio, good old shortwave, uh, across Africa uh, two years ago. So maybe we could just drop in and hear oh, what uh, a, a taste of the variety of New Orleans brass band, as explained to me uh, by me on the Voice of America.
2: Okay, let's do that.
4: Slaves were prohibited from gathering or playing their drums throughout the American South except in New Orleans, soon to be known as the birthplace of jazz. But black and white musicians were not legally allowed to play together until the mid-1960s. Let me tell you, my African brothers and sisters, brass band music has come a long way since then. This track from 2001 is by the Little Rascals Brass Band founded by trombonist Corey Henry. It spotlights the wall shaking vocals of Glen David Andrews and features African style call and response and wall of sound horns. Dirty Dozen Brass Band are legendary here. Founded in 1977 and still going strong, their sound was layers of horns, played with amazing speed and complexity. That was Blackbird Special by the Dirty Dozen Brass Band.
2: Yeah, I would I would say that my favorite New Orleans music is the Go Go Brass funk. That's where I live. That's my that's my my thing. When I'm there, I get, I go out and I'm, I really love the Brassaholics. You know, Rebirth is you know go to church on Tuesdays at the Maple Leaf. You were talking about how New Orleans doesn't doesn't limit itself to a genre and you know one of the great examples is when brass band suddenly goes from a traditional new Orleans song and will just like pop over to katy perry and then back all these different songs in this melody and yet always resolves back you're constantly hearing hearts to different things and i love that about the brass
3: if your listeners would like to hear that entire featurette it's on youtube and they would just have to search tom roach voa africa and that's R O C H E. Tom Roach, V O A Africa, and they can hear that entire feature where I, I cover about eleven of the forty brass bands and get into the stylistic differences as quickly as I can because on radio, on you know, Voice of America time is limited. At W W O Z, we got all the time in the world. <laughs> so you've also done
2: a number of other documentaries in your past. So you want to talk a little about your creative approach?
3: Well. Editors are, you know, a pretty crucial person. You know, when you think yeah. about whether it's a documentary or a uh, a, a big Hollywood blockbuster, um, any film is going to have directors, cameramen, lighting cameraman, camera women, grips, associate producers, pet, animal wranglers, lighting people, um, hundreds, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people, and all of their work has to pass through the editor. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes under the supervision of a director and sometimes under the supervision of two or three directors. Uh, Sometimes under the uh, direct supervision of um, a director who's drunk and hammered under the table and you're the one really directing it and he's going to claim all the credit. I've been in situations like that, which is fine. You know, as I had said in Mad Men, my, my paycheck is the credit. But um, the film, the the documentary that um, brought me to Atlanta was something called The Big Uneasy, and the challenge of telling a Katrina flooding story without being uh, sensationalistic or visceral visceral and getting the science in there is how do you tell the story fast enough that people aren't getting lost? And how do you tell the story slow enough where people aren't getting bored? You know, it's a, it's a remote control world. And if the, the, if the story is going too slowly, people say, I got other stuff to do. If the story is going too fast, they say I'm confused and now I'm swamped and I don't get it either. So the goal of any editor editing any project is finding the balance between telling it fast and telling it slow. The worst scenario is the viewer gets halfway through it and says, all right, all right, I got it. What else What else is on? And yeah. another bad scenario is the viewer uh, is just, they're just overwhelmed and they, they can't follow it. They're confused. So in the case of the Big Uneasy, we, we were trying to explain the science of why the city flooded. And the Big Uneasy is about 10 years old now, and it's available on my Vimeo channel, um, I believe if you just search The Big Uneasy, Harry Shearer, The Big Uneasy, it will it will come mm-hmm. up. So Harry Shearer, of course, is the uh, Californian uh, child actor, Jack Benny's radio show, Leave it to Beaver. And then he moved on to comedy with The Credibility Gap and then Smile Tap and then moved on to doing all the voices for The Simpsons. But there's a side of him that's serious. For a time, he was a high school teacher, and he was living part-time in New Orleans. And President Obama came to town and gave a little speech and referred to the Katrina damage in New Orleans as a natural disaster, which is a major no-no in New Orleans. What happened after Katrina, the tragedy, the, the deaths, that was not a natural disaster. That was a man-made disaster because of the failure of the federal levy system. It was a natural disaster over in, in uh, uh, past Christian, Mississippi, where the storm came ashore, but not in New Orleans. You can recall the, the the CNN people, the parachute journalists in the French Quarter the next morning, from their vantage point, saying, "Hey, it looks like Katrina is gone. Looks like New Orleans dodged a bullet." When just six or eight miles away, the flood walls were coming down and the city was flooding. You know, only 3% of the flood walls failed. But if you have a full bathtub and you have a 3% crack, you've still got a problem. That, that water is going to all go somewhere over time. Yeah. I can recommend the Big Uneasy for people who have already seen the Spike Lee, uh, you know, when the uh, when the levee breaks and the people who, you know, already seen the the drownings and the the sadness and the the hunger. This is a science of how the Corps of Engineers failed and how the whistleblowers that tried to call out the Corps of Engineers suffered pretty dire consequences. And no one at the Corps of Engineers lost as much as a parking spot uh, following the the deaths of 1,800 New Orleanians, many of them drowning in their own living room. They Mm -hmm. caught no slack from that. In fact, their budget quadrupled to fix it, so they sort of fail upwards. So it's a bit of an an indictment against the Corps of Engineers, and they suck a lot of money into a lot of new fixes, and to give credit where credit is due, we got through Ida, and nothing broke. So perhaps they've they've got it right this time, because at the end of the day, the Corps of Engineers who got flooded out, they they live here too. So let's hope right. that The Big and Easy is a, a, a tale we can put on the shelf. But if you at all are curious about how it happened or how people tried to be whistleblowers, I think we have a really short excerpt you could play. Yeah, let's uh, This that. is the voice of, of uh, John M. Berry, who's uh, a writer presently in the news because he wrote a book, The Great Influenza. But back uh, 15 years ago, he had written a book about called Rising Tide, about the 1927 Mississippi flood. So he's sort of an expert on waterways and sea level rise and fall. So this is just really short excerpt talking about how um, the Corps of Engineers didn't always get it right.
0: There was one contractor who in fact went to court because he did not believe the flood wall he was building could hold in front of the storm, and he wanted the Corps to do it right. The contractor told the Corps that the soil and the foundation for the walls were not of sufficient strength, rigidity, and stability. He went to court. The Corps fought him and won, and he was compelled to to build as designed, which he did, and it failed.
2: Yeah.
3: That's a short one, yeah, to... but there's so much more yeah, to the film. What...
2: Right, but I do want to say one thing. When I was there this last summer, um, there was, you know, we've had in Louisiana has had rain. I think it was almost two and a half months of rain every single day, and there was a couple pretty good storms that were happening, so everything's real saturated. But my aunt, during one of the big storms before Ida, lives in Baton Rouge, and her home flooded, had never flooded, that whole neighborhood hadn't flooded ever before. And it flooded because of something similar to what happened with the levees, in that there was a malfunction of something that they knew. And I guess the city council is kind of on the ropes for it. So mm-hmm. but these things still do happen when you're in a city that is below, or an area that is mostly below seawater, and you're trying to, that the functioning of its levee systems and its drain systems are essential to the maintenance of the city is a viable place to live.
3: Well, there's a, there's a, you know, looking forward, and this is covered in the big uneasy, the new mindset is, you know, living with water. And uh, if we could develop actually more bayous and more porous uh, Mm -hmm. parking lots and, and uh, restore the cypress forests that have been damaged by um, saltwater uh, infusion, remember, um, for every like 10 miles of cypress forest, it can it can subtract 10 miles an hour. This time, I don't have the exact figure. It might even just be a mile, but uh, solid cypress wood forest, those trees are immobile, they ain't going anywhere. They can slow down the, the wind speed of an oncoming hurricane. And a good example is Hurricane Betsy had stronger winds than Katrina and much less damage because we had much more of uh, coastal marshes still in place, and nice. through a combination of global warming these days, but also decades of oil industry, uh, canal uh, digging, and so on, New Orleans' coastline has 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 receded quite a bit. And there's a lot of effort underway to get that coastline back to being more resilient, and you know just get try and get that land back. And this was underway before the global warming realization of the creeping you know the this sea level is just starting to creep up so uh, there's a lot of balls in play here and even though new orleans is to a large to some extent under sea level it actually wasn't that way when new orleans was just a swamp a, a swamp is at sea level and when you drain a swamp and you dry it out that land sinks the mud dries out and the land sinks so You start out at sea level or a little above, or, you know, you could bring in railroads, uh, earth, you you could move the earth around and be a little bit above sea level, but when you just drain it and build housing developments and big parking lots, the land actually dries out and the land actually sinks, and now you are below sea level. So if there's a way to live with the water and chop up those parking lots, And bring water, bring the bayous back in. Even though it's kind of scary to be right by the water, um, it helps pull the sea level pulls the sea level up a couple feet, and that can make all the difference. So there's a lot of thinking. That's how the that's how they do it in Holland. They they live with the water. That's how they do it in Amsterdam. The water traverses the city everywhere, and even though it's you know even though it's potentially hazardous. The whole city is made on mud, be it be it Amsterdam or New Orleans, and if that mud can stay wet, then the city doesn't sink. Right.
2: I would like to hear more about that. I haven't heard that ever, which to me is surprising because it seems like such a obvious solution. Right. Well, uh, just
3: look up look up Harry Shearer, the Big Uneasy. I will. I'll, and I'll the read. film the film is there, and the, you know the backstory of how we got there, and then the four the forward-thinking story with some some current hydrologists saying maybe this is how we need to do this and a lot of this uh, has been adapted new new uh, shopping centers um, you know have tourists, parking lots and 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 there's new ideas all around
2: I want to make sure that you give a website that I will also include on my link for the show, but can you tell us how people can find out more about you, your work, your documentary,
3: your shows? A, I've been, a, I retired this year, but I was a very busy editor for 40 years and I was busy enough. My phone kept ringing that I never really got a website together, but I do have mm-hmm. a, a Vimeo page. So if you just went to vimeo.com slash editor Tom, one word, lowercase, vimeo.com slash editor Tom. That has all my work going back, like I say, REM videos, Space Ghost, uh, uh, The Big Uneasy. I did a great documentary about uh, rhythm and blues radio and its effect on the civil rights mu- movement that came in first place at the Atlanta Film Festival, but it's full of stolen music, so I can't sell it or air it. But if anyone is into... Uh, R and B radio, civil rights and kind of the, the, the found object weirdness of small town radio uh, you could look up Ali Alley Pat, A-L-L-E-Y-P-A-T on Vimeo. And there's also okay. clips from Ali Pat on on my Vimeo site. So that's a real rollicking thing if you again for people who like jazz, R and B, Civil Rights and then just a crazy big mouth disc jockey who would not shut up and insulted all of his listeners, uh, and was beloved. He was on the air for like about 50 years and it was like Professor Longhair is another, another example of someone widely known in the black community, not well known in the white community. And I was, uh, I I bridged that gap uh, back when I lived in Atlanta and it's, it's Andy Young is in it. And Andy Young tells me it's a civil rights comedy. (laughs) That's, that's a designation I wasn't expecting.
2: Well, we could, we could go out with that cut. You have, we have a cut from Alley Pat. you want to go with well, Alley Pat? Well, I
3: think let's just it? let's let's Oh, geez, I'm torn. Let, let's listen to Alley okay. Pat play 10 to 20 seconds and we'll say goodbye. And, and, Blake, it's been a blast. Thank you so much. So this is uh, some, some old rhythm and blues radio cassettes that I recorded myself in Atlanta. They sat in a shoebox under my bed for 20 or 30 years. And I got him out and made a documentary about him. So you'll hear Pat just carrying on outrageous ad-libs, uh, commercials, plus insulting the, the preachers who had uh, radio programs at the same station. Give, give it a spin.
0: People didn't like me until I got to that point. They didn't like me until I started insulting them. You know, there are people in this world who like to be insulted. He's at American Premier Realty Company, Joe Budges, a nice cat. He wouldn't take a dime from a blind man. He might take a dollar. <laughs> he ain't gonna take no dime. Uh, say ugly things about the advertiser, and they loved it. That's Flowers by the Vineyard. I've always told you that they are good arrangers. They can make arrangements for any occasion. If it's death, uh, wedding, because a wedding and death are very um, uh, synonymous. Uh, one is about as bad as the other. When you get married, you actually die, and when you die, you're dead also. So. Ali Pat was at the pulse of Atlanta, you know, when he was on air. He was at the heart of what was going on in the city. And, he, and you could hear him sing. <laughs> He'd sing along. He'd sing along with it, or you could hear him tapping. Man, you knew somebody was there uh, enjoying it. I, I like Ray Charles doing country and western. I guess that's cause I got cause I'm a half-heeled billy myself, you know. I got a lot of redneck in me. I like this redneck stuff. Here's the word mine. Pat and Preachers had a very interesting relationship. You've been having church all day. I know. I know. Everybody's sick of that foolishness. All y'all always praying and worrying the Lord. Y'all gonna worry the Lord to death. He gonna die again on the cross because y'all gonna worry him and beg him to death. You don't care what you say to me. Well, I'm saying what I think. What you talking about? Don't you know I know that's Lucia's church and she hired that man to come over that's there and not, preach? That's not Lucia's church. Whose is it? That's the Lord church. The Lord don't even know that church over there.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Tom, for your dedication to the music and to New Orleans and your beautiful creative voice in the world. I'm so grateful for this time.
3: All right. Well, I had a lot of fun, Blake, and best to everybody in the KZYX listening area, as we say in our (laughs) radio voice.
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed. And that concludes my interview with Tom Roche. Filmmaker from New Orleans. To listen to this show again or catch past episodes, go find Be More Now on KZWax.org and click on the link to the show archives. Or you can also visit my website, bmoreu.net, and that's the letter B without the E on that one, and check out the listen page. The show is also available as a podcast on Spotify and Apple Music, so you can share it with folks outside of our county. Next month, on November 4th, I'll be back with Shugri Said Sal, who will be discussing her book, The Last Nomad, which is a memoir chronicling her coming of age in the Somali desert. And up next at 8 p.m. is the Treehouse with W. Dan. And this week on the Treehouse, W. Dan will not be interviewing the award-winning author of anything. He will not be speaking with the foremost authority on anything profound, but he will be making you laugh. So tune in at the Treehouse up next from 8 to 10 right here. And have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for listening. Keep your spirits high and be nice to each other. I'm going to take us out with the classic Professor Longhair, Big Chief, Part 2. Have a beautiful evening.